Well, if you will, please remain standing for the reading of the word today, which will be done by Bob Finley, who's one of our campus hosts. Uh, The first reading today will be from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The second reading today will be from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, about a month ago, I was hanging out in our kitchen, just doing some work, getting some stuff done, and one of our daughters had a group of friends over, and they kept using a term over and over where finally I was like, okay, I gotta ask what it is. And the question was to my daughter, hey, what are Swifties? Are there any Swifties in here? Yeah, right, for those of you that are like, I'm so clueless, Dustin, that was me. Swifties are the fan base for Taylor Swift, who's an iconic singer, songwriter in our, our current day. And uh, as my daughter went on to explain, you know, this teenagers, they just take every opportunity that they can to jab at their parents. And so her first response to me was, dad, do you live under a rock? I'm like, yeah, actually I do live under a rock when it comes to music and movies and the arts. I'm clueless, I'm uncultured in that sense. But they went on to explain that Swifties are Taylor Swift's fan base, and when they go to concerts and all of her stuff, they get all decked out in their handmade gear. They make these like friendship bracelets that they exchange with one another. They write the number 13 on them, which I forgot what that means. But the point being is that they go all out, and it is a massive fan base. There's a recent study showed that 53% of U.S. adults ascribe to being Swifties. So those of you that are secretly hiding as uh, Taylor Swift fans, I know you're in there. But here's the crazy part, is Taylor Swift just kicked off what was called her Eras Tour back in March. And when the tickets went on for this music tour, it literally broke Ticketmaster's website. On the first day that they went on sale, the tickets, they were expecting one and a half million people to purchase tickets. But instead, 14 million people showed up on their website when they opened up, came on, and broke Ticketmaster, which created a lot of chaos. But her Eras tour is about nine months in, and she is getting close, if not already has, of broken the record for the highest grossed music tour of hitting $1 billion dollars. Now, to put this into perspective, the person who held that position was Elton John. When he had the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour, in a five-year period, he ended at $940 million. After five years of his tour going, and Taylor Swift is crushing that in eight months of almost hitting a billion dollars. In Argentina, 240 Swifties 
camped in tents for five months in front of the stadium. That way they could get the front row part of when the concert came into town. Would you camp in a tent for five months to go see your favorite singer, songwriter, or whoever? For those of you who are like, Dustin, I don't care. I have no idea who this is. But if you're an NFL watcher, you watch the football, or you watch football, anytime a Kansas City Chief game is on, guess what the cameras are doing all the time? They're looking for Taylor Swift because she's dating Travis Kelsey, the tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs. Why are they doing this? Well, because Taylor Swift is a great marketing machine and has a massive following. And so the NFL is like, yes, we're going to lean into this and bump up our ratings. And so I think there's a literal ticker that shows of how, how much better Travis Kelsey's doing in his game uh, in playing when Taylor Swift is present for the games. I share this all to just point out the fact that she is a great example of how easily we can glorify and give glory to a person. In a simplistic sense, to glorify, it's to praise or honor someone or something to an extreme degree. Our culture glorifies wealth, beauty, individuality, status, fame, Parents, we can glorify our children. We can praise and honor them to an extreme degree. Employees can glorify their boss. How about this one, pet owners? Now just be clear, I have dogs and a cat. We can glorify our animals to an extreme degree. Like the couple that my wife and I saw the other night at the park, as we're approaching them, they're walking towards us pushing a stroller and the husband's walking the dog, I'm thinking, oh, hey, they're out, you know, getting the, the toddler, the infant, ready to go to bed. And, and as they get closer and they pass us, I look down and there's no, no baby in the stroller. So I had to ask my wife, is that stroller really for the dog? And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. So we can glorify to an extreme degree our animals that we have. Here's what we need to recognize as we wrap up this Five Solas sermon series, is that glory belongs to God alone. Glory belongs to God alone. And this was the central issue, one of the central issues during the Reformation period of the church in the, in, uh, the 1500s, is that glory was being ascribed to the Catholic priests as the ones who are the mediators between God's grace and mankind. And so people were upholding the priests and giving them glory as those mediators. And Martin Luther got to a point where he said, no more. We need to get back to glorifying God alone and getting into his scripture. Because the pressing issue of that day in the Catholic church is that the priests were selling indulgences, which was a way that people would lessen the amount of time that their their friends or families or loved ones who had passed already, it would lessen their time in a place called purgatory, which was the in-between place of heaven and hell. Now to be clear, as Christians, we do not believe in purgatory because there is very little biblical support that purgatory exists. This was one of the central issues that religious practices were being taught and taking place that were not biblical, nor central to the gospel, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, 
If we confess with our mouth, we repent of our sins and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. We will receive eternal salvation. And so contrary stuff like that was taking place in the Catholic church and they were focusing on selling indulgences and Martin Luther had enough of it. And so October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the church door in Wittenberg and basically said, hey, priests, Pope, let's debate. Let's talk about this stuff. And one of his uh, uh, thesis, number 27, it says this. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Number 53 says they are the enemies, the German priests who are really pressing hard into this. They are the enemies of Christ and the Pope who forbid altogether the preaching of the word of God in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. Just pause there, but you might think like, Dustin, what does this matter? We're in you know, 2023, this happened over 500 years ago. Because friends, there are churches that you can show up to that preach the prosperity gospel or how to become the better you, the healthier you or the whatnot. And they never get into the word of God, into his scriptures and open them up and expound them. And that's exactly what was happening 500 years ago. People were showing up to worship. They were showing up to mass. And they were hearing all this stuff about buying indulgences and purgatory and nothing about God's grace that we see through scripture alone. And so Luther In number 62, he presses into the essence of why he did what he did. And he says this, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. In essence, it's like the church was playing Monopoly that those who could only purchase Baltic or Vermont Avenue, uh, they got a few years knocked off of purgatory for their loved ones. But the wealthier people, the ones who could really make the money clink in the money chest, who could purchase Boardwalk, They were getting hundreds of years knocked off of purgatory. Literally, the church was giving papers to people to claim, hey, yep, this person, 500 years knocked off for your donation. Thank you. And so the reformers during this period, they were fighting hard to see the church return to its true treasure of preaching the gospel which at a later time got summarized into the five solas that we've been covering over the past few weeks, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. And as the Reformation went on, Uh, The reformers, they worked hard to put together uh, confessional documents or catechisms to be theological and spiritual statements to help God's people grow in their understanding of the Christian faith. And we have to remind it, during this period, the printing press was a brand new invention. And so people didn't have God's word in their own language. This was a brand new idea. When they showed up to church, the word of God was in Latin which most people didn't speak. And so the reformers were pushing hard to help people grow in the understanding of the scriptures and God's grace and to get them within that. And they produced these certain catechisms and confessions to help people grow and mature in their Christian faith. And one of those as a church uh, that we ascribe to is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I love the very first question and answer that's in this catechism. It says this, 
What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So you may ask, well, okay, great. How do we glorify God? Good question. I'm glad you guys asked because let's continue on as we cover that. What we have to realize from the outset, though, is that God is glorious. God is glorious all on his own. We don't add any glory to him because God is glorious. And the first time or the the early introduction where the scriptures talk about God's glory being visibly present to God's people is seen during the Exodus when God rescued his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt and he brings them out into the desert. He's taking them towards the promised land. And it says as they approached Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, 17, we read this. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So if you're familiar with this story, Israel is encamped at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses ascends up into the mountain to be in the presence of God's glory, to receive the 10 commandments. And what do we see here? That God's glory was like a devouring fire on the mountaintop. This should bring some vivid imagery to our minds, living here in California and over the past five years, all the forest fires that we've had, the raging forest fires that are terrifying. And this is what God's people were looking up to the top of Mount Sinai and seeing God's glory present as a devouring fire. In Hebrew, the word glory is kavod, and it stems from the root word for weight or heaviness. God's weight or heaviness being present and on display. It could be translated as glory, honor, respect, distinction, and importance. But over 98% of the time that the word kavod shows up in the Old Testament that talks about God's glory all over the place, it is pointing out the word glory. And so kavod indicates the worth and value of God and it should result in a deep reverence or praise to him. Kavod should serve as a signal to our soul, to the human soul, the respect God is worthy of because God is glorious. Jumping forward to the New Testament, the apostle Peter uses the glory, the term glory, doxa in in Greek. He used that word to ascribe a name to God the Father. And he says this in 2 Peter 1.17, for when he received honor and glory, for he being Jesus, receives honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. Peter's ascribing the name to God the Father that he is majestic glory. God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, ultimately it can feel like an impossible task to define God's glory. For those of you that have been traveling with Jesus for a while, have you ever parked and just pondered that? Like, what is God's glory? In seminary, I heard it summarized in a, in a, a uh, short, sweet, to the point uh, definition by a pastor named John Piper, 
who he has spent a lot of ink and time and energy talking about God's glory and his holiness and how we're called to enjoy God forever. And he says this, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Some of you are like, Dustin, what's a manifold? It's kind of a plumbing term. It brings in a whole bunch of stuff from various ways and routes and it brings it into one manifold that then redirects things towards one direction. And so what is Piper getting at? Piper's getting at that of all of God's character and attributes, there are God's manifold perfections and his infinite beauty because of that, God's glory is on full display. Like when we look at God's holiness, his omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, he's ever-present. When we look at God's righteousness, his justice, his mercy, and his love, and all his other attributes, these should draw our hearts to want to glorify God because his glory is on full display through them. Now to land a plane on this, to put it even in a more simpler sense, if God were to show up visibly present to us right now, none of us would have to stand there and go, yeah, I'm not so sure if this is God's glory. Why? Because anytime we see this happen in scripture, what do the people do that see God's visible glory being present? They fall on their face and they worship and they hide their eyes because it is so overwhelming when his glory is present. And because of that, we should desire to want to give God glory in all circumstances. And so if God is glorious, then God reveals his glory to us in three ways. He, God reveals his glory to us in creation, in Christ, and in the church. So all throughout scripture, there are hundreds of passages, especially in the book of Psalms, that talks about God's glory. And we see this in Psalm 19.1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so we should be able to look out into creation and see God's glory within it. We have someone on staff here, Alex Miller, who's our worship assistant. And one of his hobbies is uh, taking photography or taking picture of things in space. Things that you and I with our naked eye, even on a clear night, we can't even see. And he uses a camera and a, and a telescopic lens and a computer software that helps him focus on things uh, way out in space. And one of these, that, uh, his pictures that he's taken is of the, what's called the Cygnus constellation. This is 5,000 light years away. Those of you that are math wizards, one light year is 5.8 billion miles away. So to know in Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, and creation came into existence, and ever since that time, God's creation has been expanding and growing, all for one purpose, to bring glory and praise and honor to him. When we see pictures like this, at this very moment, this stuff is expanding and growing and moving and shifting all the way out 5,000 light years away. But when we bring it back here to planet Earth, 
we go to places like the Grand Canyon. We go to Half Dome in Yosemite. We go sit on a beach in Hawaii. We go to Yellowstone and see the beauty of God's nature. Or maybe we even go to Old Sacramento. Does that count as one? No. <laughs> but we stand at these things like the Grand Canyon, massively huge things of God's creation. And what does it do? It just makes us feel so small and so insignificant. It's the same thing with our planet, Earth. When we think about how small and insignificant it is, all within God's creation, but he created it and he designed it and he perfected it that we get to live life here within his creation. That if there was a shift towards the sun or away from the sun, we would be dead. But God, out of his glory and his love for us, created for us a place to be, to dwell. Why? To give glory to him. And this is what God created us to recognize in our very own being men and women. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created man and woman, he said what? I create you in my image. We are image bearers of God. Although it got broken in Genesis 3 through sin entering into humanity, but Isaiah 43 says this, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Some of us need to be reminded of this. That you were created as a resemblance and an image bearer of God, your creator. And he claimed you, why? For God's glory. For God's glory, you were created. But because of sin, the reality is we cannot just look at creation and come to know the Father, our creator. So through his extravagant love for us, what did he do? God revealed his glory to us in and through Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, the writer, the author says this about Jesus. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you want to know who the father is? Who do we look to, church? To Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory in the exact imprint of God the father. How do we come to know Jesus more? Well, we get into scripture alone. We dive into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which don't put on a display of a God that created and exists way out there and gave us a checklist of things that we need to do to be good Christians and to earn our way to being in relationship with God the Father. No, he sent his son, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, to dwell among us to come alongside those who are the outcasts in society, the sinners, to come and show God's extravagant love that he has for his people. To show them the way, how they enter into relationship with the Father, which all happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you wanna know God, you look to Jesus who's the exact imprint of the Father. 
And the great thing about scripture is we know how all this creation is gonna end. We know the end of the story. In Revelation, we're reminded that when Jesus returns triumphantly, that all who are dead and all of us will be risen, will be held accountable, and those who are in Christ will receive our glorification and be present with Jesus, and a new heaven and a new earth will be ushered in and all sin will be gone. There'll be no more tears, there'll be no more shame, there'll be no more disease. And we will be in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of his glory, his radiance, radiant glory. And Revelation 21, starting 22, tells us this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Just think about how reliant we are on our sun here and the moon to be able to see. The sun gives us warmth so we don't freeze. The sun gives us radiant whatever so crops and food can grow. But when the new city, when the new heaven and the new earth is ushered in at the end times that we will be in the presence of Jesus, Jesus and his radiant glory will be so bright and shine that we will be directed in all matters of life in the presence of Jesus. And so God reveals his glory to us in creation. God reveals his glory to us uh, through Jesus Christ. And God reveals his glory to us in and through the church, the body of Christ, the people who profess faith in Jesus. In John 17, this is known as the priestly prayer, but really what it is, it's the Lord's prayer. It's Jesus praying to God the Father And this is what he prays for us. Starting in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus' ultimate aim in that prayer for us is that we see and enjoy his glory, the glory that was given to him between the love of the Father and the Son together, and it's extended to us. And we have received this in Christ and it should cause our souls to well up and overflow with the desire to be one as a church. What does he say back in verse 23? He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, here's the purpose statement. The world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Jesus is praying for us to become perfectly one, to become perfectly one so that the world may come to know Jesus through our love for one another. Do you see the expectation? This is a heavy expectation that he is placing on the church, on his body, on us, and the importance for us to love one another. Why is this so important? Because in the absence of love, what do we find? We find things like division 
and gossip. We don't find things like the fruit of the spirit that we find in Galatians 5, and 23. They're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. In the absence of love, we will not find those among us or being a part of us. And this was so important to the apostle John that later in his epistles that he wrote, we read this in 1 John chapter three. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? A murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do you see the foundation on which the first murder took place? It took place as Cain and Abel were on their way to worship God, to glorify God through their offerings of their first fruit. Yet with evil and sin residing in Cain's soul, the reality is he didn't truly come to glorify God with his first fruits, the best of his crop. Scriptures tell us that he gave God just an offering of his crops. What did Abel do? Abel gave him the firstborn among his flocks to glorify God. And so when God accepted Abel's offering, Cain murdered his brother in a jealous, envious rage. Now I know many of us, when we hear the story of Cain and Abel, you're like, whew, well at least I'm not a murderer like Cain. But here's the deal, we're not off the hook so quickly. As we've been repeating through our solas uh, uh, sermons over the past few weeks, we've always been going back to the passage of Romans 3.23. For those of us that have been journeying with Jesus for quite a while, this is a familiar passage that tells us, for all have sinned, not some, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And most times we just stop there and park there, and pastors use that, the opportunity to remind us of how sinful we are. But what do the following verses say? 24, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Do you see that? Do you see the five solas wrapped up into this passage? You are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and where are we expounding this out of? Scripture alone. Because of this good news that we are justified by grace alone, what is our response? Our response should be is that God is to be glorified. So if God reveals himself through creation, through Christ, through the church, our response is to glorify God. God is to be glorified. Paul further presses into God's grace that we receive in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 13. He says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
and believed in him, Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, this is good news that the moment that we believe and that we confess that Jesus is Lord and we repent of our sins, Scripture tells us that we receive the deposit, the guarantee of our inheritance of the Holy Spirit, which isn't just some magical force or a wind or something. The Holy Spirit is God in us, dwelling in us, leading us, guiding us, correcting us, holding us accountable, changing our soul and our heart to be more about God and glorifying him than we are about the things of the world and that should bring praise and honor and glory to God. And so God is to be glorified and our response to this is that we need to recognize that we have freedom in Christ. Later in the church, the apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth and they were having a debate about, hey, can we eat meat that was sacrificed uh, to idols? Uh, and there's a big debate and Paul, he ends this uh, uh, leaning into in this letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 31, and he says this. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What he was pointing out is, look, it's a conscience issue that you need to pay attention to. If you're gonna eat meat sacrificed to idols and it, you feel like that's not honoring God, guess what you should do? Not eat meat. And so he wraps it up in saying, whatever you do. Now, to be clear, there are vice lists that we consider to be sin throughout Scripture. So Paul is not saying, yep, just keep on sinning. That's not what Paul is saying at all here. But whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So even in the mundane tasks of life, does your heart cry out and give glory to God in the simplistic things of life? You know, yesterday as I was walking and working through this passage, uh, this verse was just mulling around in my mind. You know, okay, God, give glory in everything you do, in every mundane task. And as I'm walking downstairs, I look over our railing, and there's this big, like, three-foot brown stuff smeared all over the floor. And then there's this trail going into our kitchen and around the island and underneath our dining room table, and I recognize at that moment Oh man, the Roomba, the robot vacuum was on and it ran over some cat stuff. So as I'm walking downstairs, I'm just ruminating on, okay, give glory to God in all that you do. Uh, let's just say my first response wasn't that. My first response was I went and got my youngest daughter, it's her cat, and she shut the door so the cat couldn't get to the cat litter box and uh, drug her downstairs to help clean this thing up. But about 30 minutes into it of, you know, I pick up the Roomba and flip it over and you're just like, oh, good Lord, this is disgusting. I just wanted to chuck it. But it was like, no, we're gonna clean this up and we're gonna give glory to God in all that we do. And in the middle of it, I just found myself laughing because it was, it was almost like a prophetic message from God. And some of us need to hear this. When you're going through some stuff in life and it feels like it's getting all dragged all over the place, guess what we should do? Give glory to God. Because why? We worship a king of kings who paid the price that we deserved. He died the death that we deserved. He knows what pain is. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to have his friends walk away from him. 
He knows what it's like to be betrayed. So all the things that we are going through in life, all the challenges that we have in life, what do we need to do? We just need to turn our eyes and look at Jesus because he's been through it all. And we have straight access to Jesus. So even in the difficult circumstances of life, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, it's kind of crazy that we have all these great reasons to glorify God, but we so easily get sucked into the vortex of what our culture glorifies. We scroll social media for just a few minutes and, you know, Guys are probably also women. You know, you're, you're confronted with the dude who's got ripped abs, doing one-arm pull-ups, eating pizza and donuts, and is like, hey, you can get this body in three minutes a day. You know, you scroll past the mom who's got seven kids in 20 different sports, and she's got a smiling face, and just all's going well, and I only do this on four hours of sleep. These are things that we look at within our culture, and we so easily get sucked into the things of our world. You know, as disciples of Jesus who paid the ultimate price for our redemption in him, we should be focused on glorifying God alone. So what does that confessional question ask us? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So where's your soul at today? Do you desire to glorify God in all that you do? Or better yet, are you enjoying the Lord? You see, sometimes we just fall into spiritual rhythms and routines and we find ourselves being checked out. I get it. Some of you are like, Dustin, it's lunchtime. Land the plane, man. I've got my brisket on the smoker or I've got some really great friends I'm looking forward to go grab lunch with. Or we sit in here and we find ourselves mulling over the chaos of work life, family life, or mulling over the health challenges that we are facing. You see, these things will always be with us in our earthly life. So through them, we are called to enjoy the love of the Lord and have a deep desire to glorify God alone. May we be a church that models this and upholds the calling Jesus has given us to be perfectly one by showing and displaying the glory of God by loving one another and loving the people that he has placed us around to share the gospel with them. May we be a church that does this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I, I give thanks that we have a desire to gather, to worship you, to praise you, to glorify you through the singing of songs, through our prayers, through opening the scriptures, Lord. So I pray as we head out this week that our hearts would have a disposition of desiring to glorify you in all that we do. So this week as we're doing mundane tasks, Holy Spirit, press into us and remind us to glorify you, to glorify God in the midst of those things. And God, may we take advantage of the opportunities that you give us to share the good news of Jesus to the people you've placed around, to build us up as being the pastors to those people, to love on them, to shepherd them, to point them 
to the good news in Christ alone. May we glorify you in those opportunities. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.